you're new with us, my name is Tim, and I'm the lead pastor here. And we really are honored to worship with you this morning. If you found of, of this video helpful, you may have noticed at the beginning uh, the title, The Bible Project. There is a, an entire series that theologian Tim Mackey created called The Bible Project. They have simple seven to ten minute explanations of every book in the Bible, and there are multiple series of videos that deal with various topics. It is top-notch, top-quality theology, biblical perspectives on all sorts of things, and I encourage you, if you're learning, if you're interested, if you're, you're new to Christ, it's a great tool to begin to, to get to know a little bit about that, and we'll post a link up on uh, Facebook this week for that as well. And so I just wanted you to, to know where that video came from and where you can find more like that as you're, you're trying to understand a little bit of, of scripture. Now, I, um, I want to both apologize and kind of say like, sorry, not sorry for the odd beginning to worship today. And it's running a little bit late. We did baptisms in between services. We baptized nine people this morning and it's a special day for me, um, we began Hydrant Church on um, October 6, 2013, and today marks a day that we crossed a line and we baptized, as of today, 101 people since the beginning of Hydrant Church. Yeah, that's something we're celebrating. Today is Pentecost, and what we're going to see as we get to the end of this message is that 3,000 people were baptized, and it was this sign and symbol of this creative energy of God being unleashed on creation. And for me, this 101 lives shaped, this 101 lives and families and homes and legacies being marked by the water of baptism, the Spirit of God, is a sign and symbol of this God, this Spirit at work in our community, in our state, in our world around us. He has not abandoned us, and He continues to be at work, transforming lives. And this is a sign, a symbol, a beginning of what He is doing in this place. And, and we were thinking about it the other day and, and, and talking a little bit about it as we realized we were going to kind of cross that 100 mark today. And, and, and the number of people, because of, well, it's Goldsboro, we turn over 30% every three years. It's a military town. And because of this, some of those 101 aren't around Goldsboro anymore. And we've sent them as missionaries. And this is the best part. We let the Air Force pay to do it. Right? They, we just let them do that. They moved them, covered the cost, put them in a new location. And they're serving God with the things they learned and experienced in Hydrant Church in those places. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing that we can see the reach and the way that the Spirit expands what He's doing. And it's, and it's your faithfulness to that mission. And I'm so thankful and honored to be a part of, of Hydrant Church and what's, what's happening here. Now, as we, we, like I said a moment ago, it's Pentecost. And it's, as the church, we look back on the life of Jesus as a way of understanding how it is that we get to experience the life we get to experience now. We look back every year at these key moments in the life of Jesus to understand how it is that we can be forgiven, how it is that we can experience the strength we need to follow him, how it is that there is so much good and beauty and love in the world. How it is that we can live up to our potential or be united with our neighbor across, um, across uh, any kind of ethnic, gender, or socioeconomic lines. How is it 
that the, the creator of the world has reclaimed his creation and reclaimed humanity and invited us back into this thing he calls the kingdom of God. And so we look back at these key moments year after year. The first that we looked at was the birth of Jesus. And we celebrated this at Christmas. And it's this moment in time where we realize that God is a father who refuses to abandon his creation. He refuses to abandon his children. Now, as a good father, he will let us wander into the desert. He will let us reject him and abandon his ways while he still refuses to abandon us. He will let us walk into sin and self-destructive patterns. He lets us hurt one another because he realizes that he can't manipulate humanity. He can't manipulate his children and know what love is or really transform our lives. And so he invites us in to this relationship with him. And it begins at Christmas. It begins in this, this moment in which he shows us again how to live. The story continues. And the second great moment in the story is the moment when Jesus is killed. When he's hung on a cross, we stop and we remember. I don't know that we really celebrate it so much, but we stop and we remember that moment in the story on Good Friday. And we stop and we mourn the brokenness of our humanity. We mourn our sin and we, we demonstrate the sorrow of, for all of the ways, as Dustin described, that we failed or break relationship or, or destroy this creation that he has made. And in that moment, we find a God who is willing to do whatever it takes. It says, if you're going to be separated from me, if you're going to walk into hell on earth and after earth, then you're going to have to do it over my dead body. I am going to give everything to draw you back and make a way for you to live a different life, to know what it is to have life. But there is this other kind of piece to this story We'll all have to allow some things to die in our lives to really know life. Because the next moment in the story is his resurrection. We celebrate it three days later on Easter. That life trumps death. Death never has the last word. But in our faith, you have to walk through death to get to life. You have to walk through the pain. You have to persevere. You have to be willing to lay things down. Sometimes it's attitudes. Sometimes it's addictions. Sometimes it's fears. It's always the lies that we let deep inside us that define us and that we use to prop up this facade, this image that we want others to see. And all of that dies and we find real life on the other side of it. And that's the beauty of resurrection. Death doesn't have the last word. Not physical death, not emotional death, not the death of relationships or marriages or those we care about. Death doesn't have the last word in this creation anymore because Jesus rose from the dead. Somebody say amen. All right. I know we've got some old school church people in here. It's okay. I know if you're new, amen just means that's right. You can just agree with me once in a while out loud, and what will happen is I might even preach a little better. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know quite how to take that, brother. I love you. Our fourth moment in the story is the ascension. 
when Jesus, the living, live, physical Jesus, left this earth. Now, just as a little side note, um, it, it really it may or may not help you, but when we come to the Gospels, there is this conviction that Jesus physically rose from the dead, right? Thomas put his finger into his hand. He put his, he put his hand into his side. And sometimes we wonder, can this stuff really be? And, and here's what it boils down to for me. Like when you look at history, when you look at uh, the, the documents of the Caesars, the stories written of the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, going back through time, we have ways of determining the validity of these documents. One thing that we look at is how close to the actual event was the document written and how many early copies exist. Two kind of measurements for the validity of the history in these documents. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have hundreds of times more copies, early, early copies of the Gospels than we do any other historical document. And the timing from when they were written to when the events happened is closer than any other historical document that we have. There is more scientific validity more historical validity for the truth in the Gospels than in any other historical document we have about the Roman Empire, about, about the British Empire, about the Persians, or, or the Assyrians, or any other group in history. There is more based on those criteria used within history to determine the validity of a document. Now, we look at these and we say, well, they talk about supernatural things. I'm not sure if we can buy that. You can go down that line of thinking if you want, but there's more evidence for a physically raised Jesus as those who saw him. It says they met with like 500 people between the time he raised and the time he left. In 40 days, ran into 500 people who saw him, and the testimonies are what is written and why Christianity got an early root. So that's a side note, has nothing to do with anything unless you care about that stuff. If you don't doubt sometimes like I do, then that's not helpful. If you do, maybe it is. So here we have this fourth moment in the story. It's captured in Acts chapter 1, and you can turn there if you'd like. Acts chapter 1, if you turn to the middle, start working toward the back. at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then Acts is written by the same guy who wrote the book of Luke. And if you get into the long words that maybe are a little harder to pronounce, you've gone too far, so come back. And it's the book of Acts. And we're going to be in the very beginning of this. And we find the story of Jesus' ascension. And it begins in verse 4. It says this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them. Spirits don't eat. Ghosts don't eat. It's kind of just saying, hey, this was the real physical Jesus. He ate. Apparently he liked fish. Um, from other stories we know. I, I kind of like that about him. Um, on one occasion, he says, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of the Father, gifts my Father promised. You've heard me speak about it. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they began to ask, is now the time? Is this the time you're going to rebuild the kingdom of Israel? You're going to put your kingdom on earth. And he said to them, it's, it's not really any of your business. 
He said, it's not for you to know the dates or the times or the seasons that my father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power. He refocuses. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You will demonstrate what this kingdom is about. What I'm about. And you'll do that in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, it says he was taken up before them. Before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. So they were looking up to the skies intently as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him, beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking to the sky? This same Jesus who's been, he's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now imagine with me, if you would, that it's, it's the year, it's a, it's a year somewhere around 2050. And there's a guy named Joseph, and Joseph is, is sitting in his recliner, and he's staring up at the ceiling, the same, the same ceiling that he has lived under for the last 60 some odd years. And he's imagining what he's imagined many nights. He's imagining the, the ceiling kind of going transparent, and he can look into the sky. He can look into the stars. He's imagining that moment where he'll be caught up with Jesus. And he's thinking about the fact that it won't be long now until a doctor makes his demise official with a signature on a state certificate. And as he imagines these moments, it feels a lot like he expected it to. His family had come to this place, this village of the second advent when he was just a boy. His, his parents were, were converted in one of those um, revival meetings. They got really popular in the late 70s and 80s and they, they had this moment and, and, and turned to him. They both worked in the computer industry in the early days. His, his, um, his mother was in hardware or built computers, and, and his dad, he, he wrote software programs. And they really were kind of skeptical of, of any kind of organized religion. They, they had not grown up in the church, had got grown up knowing Jesus, really weren't sure they wanted anything to do with those kinds of people. And then they met this guy who offered them a job. He was a wealthy man, and he had become obsessed with this idea of, of figuring out a way to predict the return of Jesus. And he offered them jobs because he wanted to build a computer and write the software program that could take in all of the data and make this prediction of the day of the return of the Lord. Now, of course, for them, they wouldn't have talked about it that way. They really wouldn't have understood Jesus as Lord or thought of Jesus as Lord at this point. But that time came later. You see, they, they began to, to work on the project. And the deeper they got into the project, the more they kind of want to understand what it was about, to kind of understand the substance of the project. And so their, their employer told them of Jesus and his promise to return the same way that he had left. The promise he had made to his first followers. And he told them how those, those followers had stared to the sky after Jesus ascended on a cloud. And he said, listen, watch the skies. And he would say this almost every day, watch the skies. Watch the skies. The skies will tell you everything you need to know. 
he had worked out this kind of complicated scheme, this complicated understanding of the Hebrew calendar and, and other astrological phenomena. And, and, he, and he had hoped to calculate this true time of our Lord's return. His work was not contaminated by the need to make money like a, a lot of them were at this time. He had all the money he needed and he figured too that, that if the Lord returned like he believed, then it wouldn't matter who had money and who didn't. And, and so it, he just he used it and was generous with it and really didn't care about trying to make any more. Joseph's parents, they, they really remained skeptical for years. They would ask him why. If the angel in that story he told them about told the disciples that they weren't going to know and it wasn't any of their business to know the time or the season of his return, why did he think it would be him who figured it out? And he would explain to them that the angel told the first followers that they wouldn't figure it out. But that certainly didn't need to apply to all followers throughout all time. Especially with the, the advent of new technologies and the development uh, of, of our ability to understand the world since that time. That certainly we should be able to figure this out. To read the signs that they couldn't possibly see. And little by little the, the man's aspirations began to rub off on them. And they began to own them as their own. And after a period of time they, they had started to hire so many Workers, so many followers were a part of this mission that they decided that they needed to to be able to spend more concerted effort and time on the project. And so, so the the wealthy man he bought this apartment complex, and everyone who was a part of the team moved into the apartment complex. And they they took the clubhouse, right? And they took the clubhouse and they transformed it into a place for the big computer and computer labs for writing the software and, and doing the computations. And they, they used that as a place for their work. Now, Joseph, as a child, he, was, he, he started going to school in the complex once they all moved in. I mean, all the kids did. They, the, their parents wrote the curriculum. Of course, it was, it was more technologically advanced than anything they would have gotten in the other schools around them. And, and all of life was kind of encompassed there. And during, during their years in the village of the Second Advent, that's what the, the wealthy man called it. During their time in the village of the Second Advent, the, the computer had put out dates. And as a date would come and pass without the return of Jesus, a few of the followers would leave. And a few more with each time. Eventually, Joseph's parents died. But he, he considered himself a true believer because his parents were true believers. And so he took up their work. He eventually began to manage both the village and the project. And a couple more of those dates came and went. And it really just dwindled down to him and a few others. They decided that they needed to rent out some of the apartments to, to make ends meet. And so they began to allow some outsiders into the village. A few years later, the computer equipment had become so outdated that they couldn't fix it anymore. It wasn't repairable. And, and really, by this time, Joseph was the only original person left. The, the entire complex was filled with outsiders and the clubhouse held parties and 
and, and that kind of thing once again. I mean, I guess the truth is that it really wasn't full of outsiders. He was the outsider now. Then one day, the, the city came to him, and they had a proposal. They asked if, they would, if he would consider using the apartment complex as a home, as, a, as kind of a, a group home for children whose parents had died or abandoned them, a place where they and their guardians could come and, and live. And, and it seemed like a good cause to him. And so, so after some negotiations and making sure that the current tenants had found a way to be cared for and found a new place, they closed the deal. And those children and their guardians began to move in. And day after day, he would sit in his apartment and he would hear them outside as he searched the internet, reading more uh, archaeological discoveries, reading about astrology, or reading like about technology, and it was kind of his way of searching the skies still. I mean, he tried to keep his eyes up, tried to keep searching. One day, he went outside. As he knelt down to speak to this one little five-year-old girl who was playing outside, he heard this voice. It, it was, he knew it was internal, but it was as clear as anything he'd ever heard before. And the voice said, I'm the one you've been searching for. And this, this sinking feeling just, just overwhelmed him. You know, kind of like if you were at an airport waiting to board a plane, and then you hear that scratchy voice come over the loudspeaker, and the plane you've been waiting for just took off from another gate and you missed it. It felt kind of foolish. But every time he spoke to one of those kids, he heard that voice again. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one you've been searching for. It's me. He had been searching... The skies for his Lord, waiting, only to find out that his Lord had come to him as a little child. And so Joseph will go meet Jesus, but no longer as a true believer. He goes as one who has seen Jesus in the face of the children around him, in the face of his neighbors, in the face of the marginalized, the written off, and the forgotten. And he thinks, perhaps it's not for us to know the time or the season. And Joseph says, all I know is that Jesus showed up a second time for me in the eyes of that little girl. And we're reminded that as Jesus ascended, as Jesus ascended, his desire was not that you and I spend our lives staring toward the sky, waiting for him to come back, waiting to get to heaven, waiting to escape this world in the hopes of one day he'll come back. He didn't want us to spend our entire lives staring up. He says, no, no, go. And in 10 days is what it took. 10 days later, the spirit came and he turned them toward one another again. And in the eyes of every child and every woman on the corner and every man on the street, every person who works in your office or in your, or who sits beside you in the work truck, every person in your home and in your neighborhood, these are the places and the people in whom we see Jesus. 
This is our family. This is the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It is the invitation that God has had from us from the very beginning of time when he created us as human beings, as his family on earth. And when the spirit came, as we'll read about in just a moment, it changed everything and gave us back our humanity, gave us back our identity. We find the story in Acts chapter two, beginning at verse one. And and this This pivotal moment in history is captured in just four verses, in just a few lines. It says this, then the day of Pentecost came and they were all together in one place. And suddenly the sound like a blowing violent wind. So the sound right here, that word for sound is the same word that was used for voice on the moment when Jesus was baptized. So what it says is the voice of God, right? A sound like the voice of God came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that that separated and came to rest on each of them. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They spill out of this place and people think they're crazy and drunk. This isn't kind of the tongues that we think about of of an angelic language or some other language that needs to be interpreted or understood. They spoke in their language and everybody else heard them in their own. So it would be as if there were people who spoke French and Spanish and, and Portuguese and Chinese and they heard me speak in English, but they heard the words in their own language. That's what's happening here. And people think they're crazy. In this small moment, God pours out his spirit. He gives them the power and ability to live a life of love and putting his very energy, his spirit, his presence into every one of his followers. And they have to try to convince people (laughs) that they're not crazy or drunk. I mean, if you live your life like Jesus did, if you live with that kind of love and joy and peace, and devotion to others, if you have those kind of relationships, people are going to think you're crazy. I mean, they're going to think you're a little weird. And, and, and the truth is, they may even accuse you of being drunk once in a while. I mean, that may, that may be okay, because they did call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard in his day. Peter quotes the ancient prophet Joel to, to help them understand what's going on. See, the people, he said, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I don't know how that was supposed to be convincing. Like I've I've met two people at nine in the morning who are still drunk. But um, he says only nine in the morning. He says this, this is what was spoken about by the prophet. Oh, and you can find the words there in Acts chapter two. It says this in the last days, in these days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, just let that sink in and we'll move on without saying anything. I'll pour out my spirit in those days and they'll prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone 
going to try. Okay. <laughs> There's this moment. And Peter steps up. Well, he's kind of pushed up. And he speaks for the group. He says, listen, the spirit has come and everything changes today. This Jesus, you remember him, right? Jesus, the one who walked among you, the one who who God kind of showed you was himself through his miracles and the things that he taught you. You remember him, right? The one you killed. It says they were cut to the core. They said, what do we do now? What do we do now? His response, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. We see some things happening in this moment that are so powerful and remarkable. Jesus gives us his very energy. He gives us his spirit within us. Romans 6, 10, and 11 says the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living in you. He energizes the life within us by becoming one with us. We are united with him. The very spirit that was in Jesus, the very spirit that enabled him to teach, to do the good that he did, to do the miracles, to be who he was, is in you, in me. The very spirit that is in me, is in you, is in our teenagers, in our children, in everyone who is willing to follow, we are given the Spirit, given everything we need to live the life that's worth living. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, when when it's paraphrased, comes out something like this. I will bring the very best out of you. The world drags you down. The world rips you apart. But I will bring the best out of you. I will make it possible for you to live the way you were created to live. I will give you back the life you were created to have. It'll be filled with purpose and meaning and hope and joy and love. And everything changes in this moment when His Spirit comes. It is the power we need, the strength we need to live as witnesses, as those whose lives tell the story that says you don't have to live by your lust. You don't have to live by your greed. You don't have to live by violence and control and manipulation. You can live in self-sacrificial love and it will change the entire world. There is another way of being in the world. And it's counterintuitive. And it will cost. But it is worth every second. It is what he gives us and enables us to live. Not only does he do this, but his spirit says, it says that he guides us into truth. Jesus in John 16, 13 says, however, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Do you know God doesn't deal in falsity? Like we can't come to God pretending to have things together, pretending to be right, tending all this stuff. And he even acknowledged that. Like he doesn't play those games that we play with one another where we put this facade up and pretend to be something we're not. He doesn't deal in the lies that we let control and manipulate us and guide us. In fact, he exposes those. And here's the problem. It always hurts first before it gets better. 
When we start to see ourselves as we truly are, as we start to see the lies we believed, the falsities that have owned us and manipulated us, it hurts first. Then it leads to freedom. Overcoming addiction is about finding reality. It's about finding reality. And it hurts first to realize what's happened in us. But then when we overcome and we step into what is true about who we are and who we can become, it is freedom. It is life. And this is what the Spirit does. He guides us into truth. Sometimes it's convicting. Sometimes it's revealing. Sometimes it's hope when we thought there was no hope. He guides us away from sin. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is about the sin. The things that we think we want. The things that we think will make us happy. The things that we think will bring fulfillment and never really do. He'll guide us away from those. And empower us to live the life we really want. Galatians 5.22 and 23. It says that the fruit of the Spirit. The things that grow in you when the Spirit is in you. Love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. If that's not life, I don't know what is. That, that is how we live in joyous relationship with one another, how we fulfill our purpose, how we step into this new world, this new king, this new way of living that God and Jesus described as the kingdom of God. It's about a way of life. It's not about a place. It's not about escaping this world. It's breaking through in every moment, in every place where the Spirit is. And He gathers us together, and then He sends us back out. He breaks down the walls. He tears down the doors. He crashes through the windows, and He sends us out into our world. It's never just about us. It's always about us being empowered to be all that we were created to be for the common good, for the will of God throughout the world. The next thing that we see here, and and, and I am wrapping up, Jesus gives us back to one another. In Genesis chapter 11, we find this story. We call them myths, not because they're made up stories, but because they're stories that tell us about how the thing, how the world is. Every culture has myths, stories that explain why things are the way they are. And Genesis chapter 11 is one of those stories. It's the story of the Tower of Babel as as humanity comes together all in common language and purpose to build a city so big with a tower that is so tall that it can reach into the heavens and they can take God off his throne and they can control creation. And God realizes how terrible the world would be for everyone if this happens. And he breaks down the wall, he changes their languages and divides them. And what happens at Pentecost when they begin to speak in the tongues that they describe here is a reverse of the Tower of Babel. And he gives us back to one another. That in the kingdom of God, the divisions that we create, the divisions that destroy us, that cause hate, the the divisions between socioeconomic class, the divisions between gender, the divisions between race, they all dissolve and he trusts us with one another again as we learn by the power of the Spirit to love one another. We are shaped and brought into one family, one humanity, the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of God. And we are given back to one another. And those divides are no more. And we look to one another. And he brings us together as those strange neighbors. 
As the, as the stranger that becomes friend, that becomes family. He gives us back to one another. It happens as we begin to repent, to turn away from our selfish ambition, to try to figure out and manipulate and make life turn out the way we want. When we, when we turn from that, and we're baptized, we brought into the family of God, we receive the Spirit. And you know what happens when they do that? They start eating together. And they start praying together. And they start serving their community together. And they start studying and understanding the things of God together. And this is the craziest part. The whole community loved them for it. If you are a Christian and your neighbors don't like you, you might be doing it wrong. If you are a believer and people don't want to be around you, you might be doing it wrong. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are more concerned with being right than you are with loving the people around you, you might be doing it wrong. We see within those first followers that not only were they engaged with one another, they served their community. God added to their numbers every day. There was this explosion of new life as they focused on the things that mattered most, the things that brought them together, and they let God work out those other things. And it's what we're invited to. It's why we baptize today. We chose today. A sign and symbol of the new life. 101 people have gone into that water and be lifted up in this place. And God is bringing about new life. And he says, will you be a part of it? I'm inviting you into this kingdom. But you, you are my child and I love you so much. The choice is yours. I'm not going to force you to stay home. I'm not going to force you to be in this life. I'm not going to force you to live in this way. But I'm going to invite you to discover all that you were created to be. To receive the life I designed and made you to live. I'm going to give you back to your neighbors and give your neighbors back to you. And together, you're going to both enjoy and spread the word of how life was meant to be. Of what this thing was meant to look like. We just call it the kingdom of God. It's a whole different way. And I guarantee somebody will think you're crazy if you do it. Somebody will think you're weird. And at some point you may even get accused of being so joyful that they think you're drunk. I don't know. They may just not like you and accuse you of something. I don't know. But it's the invitation. It's always just invitation. Pure invitation, this, this, this God who invites us back into relationship with him and discover what we are made to be, to let him bring the best out of us, to let him create in us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. After all, Paul wrote that this kingdom of God, it's about righteousness, right relationships. It's about peace and about joy. May those define us and shape us. And may his spirit send us out from this place to live those everywhere we go. We're going to pray. So if you would, just just close your eyes with me. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. I'm just going to ask you to talk to God in your own heart and mind right now. And the story there, this key moment in this story of Jesus tells us that, that as those people standing around heard Peter 
tell the story of Jesus, that it, it, it cut them to the very core, and they wondered, what do we do? What do we do about this? How do we get in on this? Peter said, repent. Just, just turn around. Follow him. Be baptized and receive his spirit. And so I wonder, what is, what is Jesus inviting you to right now? Is he inviting you into a, a new commitment to, to be among his people? To be eating together, praying together, and in the word together? Is he, in, is he inviting you to repent and find new life? Father, so grateful to be in this place among my friends here. And God, we believe you brought us here together for these moments. That you are inviting us into this whole other way of being. It's marked by hope and joy and possibility. It's marked by life instead of destruction and pain and death. And so we ask for the courage to respond. Whatever you're asking each of us, would we have the courage to respond? And if we need the help, would we look to the person beside us and act and ask for the help? God, in these moments, would you begin to set us free from lies that have held us? Would you set us free from the things that have divided us? Would you set us free to be your witnesses in Goldsboro and North Carolina and beyond. God, we love you and we need you. We trust you. Continue to fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, it was such an honor to worship with you this morning. We hope to see you again next week. Enjoy a homemade cookie on your way out, and we'll see you soon.